Today's reading is from Ezra 4, 1 through 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezerheaven, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to the, our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the days of Darius, king of Persia. This is the very word of God. Well, the book of Ezra is part of the historical literature in the Bible. It tells a story, a story of history. So like any story, there are episodes to the plot. Episode one is found in chapters one and two, detailing the return of the exiles, the Jewish exiles, the exiles of Israel and the land of Babylon coming back to their homeland. We began episode number two last week, the third chapter, which tells of Israel's prioritizing restoration of corporate worship. We saw last week the reason why corporate worship, one of the reasons corporate worship matters for the people of God and why it's distinctive for the people of God is because it is about remembering our identity as God's redeemed, saved people. So that's where we are in our story. We're in this second episode of the first plot. There's actually two plots in Ezra's story, which is interesting. Now, like any story, there has to be conflict. You don't really have a good story without there being some conflict. There has to be frustration. And that's what we find in chapter 4. At the intersection of history, the intersection of God's providence, his sovereignty over all of history, at the intersection of that and the frustration that comes in the story of God, in the people of God, among the people of God, there's a critical lesson to be learned about the Bible, about God, about his purposes, about the gospel. And so we have to pause in the story long enough to see the message, to learn the lesson. The people of God will always face resistance when they are devoted to God's kingdom. The people of God will always, you can count on it, face resistance when they are seeking first the kingdom of God. And that's 
one of the important lessons that Ezra tells us in retelling the story of these returnees from Babylon. In this particular account of chapter 4, I want us to notice the adversaries, the threat, and the hope. The adversaries, the threat, and the hope. First, we ended chapter 3 with kind of a mixed response to the corporate worship of the people of God. There was joyful celebration. There was loud lament. And chapter 3 ends by saying, the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The movie scene now turns to that faraway place as we pick up in chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, so here comes the conflict. Here we now encounter what chapter 3 called the peoples of the lands. The cause of Israel's fear in the previous chapter, the whole reason that they had to prioritize some semblance of worship and the chaotic moments of their arrival back in Jerusalem. As we've said, every story has to have conflict, so every story needs an antagonist. The perpetrators of conflict for the protagonist in the story. Those are some of the most important elements of any good piece of literature, whether it is a work of fiction or nonfiction. You know this instinctively as you read a story or as you watch a movie. These are also some of the most important elements of meaning as we seek to interpret and apply the scriptures, especially the story, to our lives. We need to know who, can I say it this way, we need to know who the good guys are and we need to know who the bad guys are. We need to know what defines some as adversaries, what makes one a protagonist or an antagonist. We need to grapple with how we should respond to the story in light of what the story's telling us about the good guys and the bad guys. So looking back on the story, it's easy to see the distinction here between the good guys and the bad guys. We're even told right away that the people that we're about to meet, that we're meeting right here in chapter 4, they're called the adversaries of these returned exiles. The returned exiles are literally called the sons of the captivity. So we are bracing ourselves for what is about to come. We know these adversaries are up to no good. But Ezra is not interested here in only telling us about the story of what happened in this particular time. As Ezra's writing this account, chapter 4 is extremely interesting because he's telling a story of fairly long ago in history. He's not writing about a recent event to his current audience. He's going to talk about this particular story, but he does so in a way that shows he has a longer story in mind. Let me show you what I mean. The story that Ezra tells in chapter 4 is all about the opposition that God's people encounter as they seek to return from exile. That's what it's about. But the opposition comes in different forms, and it comes for a very long time. You can see this in verses 4 and 5. The adversaries of the sons of the exile discouraged them, made them afraid to build, the text says, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, that's a period of about 15 years. So let me give us a sense of the time by saying it this way. Just stay with me for a minute, okay? I'm trying to give us a sense of the chronology. The church was afraid to pursue the kingdom of God all the days of President George W. Bush's second term, even until the election of Joe Biden as president. That's the timing. But watch this. Verse 6 takes us even further ahead into the future. To the time of the reign of Ahasuerus, he succeeded Darius in 486 BC. That's about 50 years later than the time in which chapter 4 begins. And then verse 7, we are taken to the days of Artaxerxes. He's the next king. He started his reign in 464 BC. So now we are more than 70 years in the future from the time that we began in verse 1. All commentaries point this out, and there's lots of debate about why in the world does Ezra tell his story like this? In fact, verses uh, 4 all the way to the next to last verse are like a big parenthesis in the story. You can go from verse 3 to the last verse of Ezra 4, and then it all makes sense. So why does he tell the story this way? Well, he does it to give us a sense of the prolonged story of opposition. So we're now 70 years in the future. We are taken to the time in which the second plot of Ezra begins in chapter 7, the very days of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were contemporaries, long after the temple has been built, and the topic of plot 1 has been brought to completion. We are way past the solution to the problem we're reading about in chapters 4 and 5. So again, got to give you a sense of the chronology. The church was afraid to pursue the kingdom of God from the days of President Harry Truman all the way until the days of the administration of Joe Biden. That's how he's telling the story. This is a long story of opposition. So Ezra 4, 6 to 23 is like a big parenthesis. The last verse picks up where verse 5 leaves off. And so why does he tell the story this way? What, he has a reason for doing this. And the answer is that the bad guys... In his day, he wants to associate them with the bad guys 70 years earlier. The same kind of opposition in Ezra's day as he's actually writing to his contemporaries is at work that was working 70 years earlier. Now, true, there's different individuals on the scene, but here's the important point being made. What Israel is now doing, rebuilding a temple, Restoring obedience to Mosaic law is no small thing, and this is made plain by the unremitting antagonism, 70 years of antagonism that continues to come against these sons of the exile. Now, as with so many other Old Testament texts, it's not, immediate obvious, it's not immediately obvious how the story of Ezra is meaningful for us today. Forget 70 years. We are about 2,500 years from the time that's recorded in Ezra. Now, of course, we experience conflict and opposition. We sang about that, and probably you are thinking of some particular ways that you're feeling adversity in this life. But can we claim the same kind of conflict as that which confronted Ezra and the other sons of the exile? 
Can we read this story and be so sure that we're the good guys and that everyone who seems to be a problem in your life, you know, that person at work, that neighbor, whatever, is the bad guy. Can you do that? It simply won't do, but this is how many people read the Bible. It simply won't do to take a story like Ezra and make this all about how to conquer your frustration with your neighbor. It's just not going to work. The story is much bigger than that. This is not some kind of moral tale about how to overcome your adversary that's keeping you from getting that promotion at work. That's not going to be the way you can understand what's happening. So what's the way forward then in understanding Ezra's message for you and me today? And it is to understand the significance of the event. The significance of the event. This event, and I'm talking about rebuilding the temple. This is the second temple. This is the temple that would be standing in Jesus' day. This event is the only event in post-exilic history that gets triple coverage in the Bible. We're reading about it here in Ezra, but there's two other books. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah also tell the story. We're going to meet them in the next chapter, by the way. They also tell the story of the rebuilding of the temple. So something significant about this event is happening in the biblical story. Before we can know who the good guys and the bad guys are, we need to understand the significance of the temple and the threat that the temple posed in our story. So let's do that. What is the significance? What's the threat that Israel's adversaries perceive when Israel's back in Jerusalem rebuilding a temple? What's the big deal? Well, we know, of course, that the Bible tells a story of constant opposition to the Jews, to the people of Israel. Most people know that. So we're not surprised then to find that God's chosen people face conflict pretty much at every turn in the story. Ever since Genesis chapter 12 and God's selection of Abraham, it's one of the most consistent themes in the pages of Scripture. However, it is a mistake to say that the nation of Israel and every ethnic Jew is always the good guy in the biblical story. Romans 9 verse 6 tells us that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's a stunning statement. Verse 8, Romans 9, 8 clarifies, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. One becomes a true child of God among the people of God, only through faith, through faith in God's promises. So the good guys in the biblical story are not any particular race of people and certainly not the citizens of some particular nation. It is loyalty to Israel's God, not loyalty to Israel that matters. Or here's another way to say it. The protagonist in the biblical story, even in Ezra, is not Israel, but Israel's God. The story is about him and those whom he saves through faith. That's who the story is all about. 
So what we should expect to see then as the perceived threat by the antagonist is if God is actually the protagonist of the story and if what God is up to is saving a people through faith in his promise, then what you can expect the antagonist to be doing is trying to thwart any hint of loyalty to God to try to undermine faith in his promise. That's, that's what you could expect, right? If, if I've set this up right, if I'm reading my Bible right, if that's who the real protagonist of the story is, then that's what the enemy, that's what the adversary is, all, is going to be concerned with. And what we expect to see is the antagonist is willing to do anything, anything possible to frustrate that devotion to God. So, when the adversaries of the returned exiles approach the leaders of the exile and say, verse 2, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, you should be suspicious, right? These are the adversaries. They're saying, hey, hey, we'll help you out. We're on your side. Now, remember, the readers of Ezra are reading this story from at least 70 years after the fact. So they know when they read this account, they know who these people are when they say, we have been sacrificing to your God ever since the days of Ezra Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now you should know who that is too. So you should write in your Bibles, 2 Kings 17. We know exactly who these adversaries are. In 2 Kings 17, we we read the story of the northern kingdom of Israel being sent into exile by the Assyrians. Remember, Judah gets deported by the Babylonians, but the northern kingdom, Israel, years before, gets conquered by the Assyrians and carried off into exile. But what the emperors of the Assyrian empire did was they resettled people from other lands into their conquered place. And as you read in 2 Kings 17, I'm just abbreviating the story, you'll find that um, they decide to send one of the priests to go back into the land and teach the people the customs of their God. And the result that we are told, very strikingly, is that the people, remember, these are pagan peoples now living in the land of Israel, the people feared the Lord, that sounds good, but also serve their, other, their own gods. Interesting. That's who these adversaries are. You might know them. They are the forerunners to a group of people we find in the New Testament called the Samaritans. That's who we're reading about. These are the adversaries. And one of the ways that the antagonist in the biblical story seeks to counteract the God of Israel is by watering down total loyalty to him. Here's what they say. You can worship your God. We'll even help you. But the true people of God know there is no way to compromise with idols. None. This is one of the antagonist's primary ways of frustrating God's plans in his world. People of God, let us learn the lesson. Let us watch out for the temptation of a divided loyalty To God. Listen to me. The antagonist is willing to join you. He is willing to be on your side. 
He is willing to affirm all of your morals. He is willing to pass the legislation you like. He will do anything, anything to keep your loyalty divided, to keep you from undiluted faith in God's promise. The enemy often shows up on your side of the political aisle. Now, of course, if you won't compromise with idols, the antagonist will not hesitate to turn against you. Verses 4 to 23, the long parenthesis, describe this long history of political pressure meant to, verse 5, frustrate their purpose. But here's an important point. Loyalty to Israel's God is no private affair. It is a threat to the kingdoms of this world. If your faith in God is all about private devotion and merely a way for you to get to heaven when you die, then it will easily be assimilated into the ways of the world, whether conservative or liberal. You didn't hear me. If your faith in God is all about some private devotion, a way to get to heaven when you die, if that's all that you're trusting Jesus for, then your faith, that faith, can easily be assimilated into the ways of the world. I don't care if you call yourself conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, makes no difference. Your faith in God can easily be co-opted by the political powers if your faith in God is not earthly in its perspective. If your hope is in a disembodied heaven rather than in a resurrected, immortal life in, on earth in new creation the, in the kingdom of God that has already come, you will be co-opted by the powers of this age. See then what is really happening in our story in Ezra 4. The real conflict here is it's a spiritual conflict, but the word spiritual is so difficult in these days. When I say spiritual, I do not mean disembodied and irrelevant. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean this, verse 6. The adversaries wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I don't, I don't want to make too much of this, but the Hebrew word translated accusation is sitna. It is the same Hebrew word from which we get the name Satan. Spiritual resistance is always present whenever God is at work. Here we see the real antagonist in the biblical story exposed. And the real threat, here's what, here's what Satan cares about. I was talking to somebody this week, and they started talking about, oh, I think this is what Satan's doing. And I was like, oh, well, that's, I mean, how do we know? Satan is doing. Here's what we know from the Bible. This is what Satan sees. The threat is the intrusion of God's kingdom on earth. You want to be content with a spirituality that's just about when you die, you go to heaven? Satan will say, I'll help you with that. But if your faith is about undivided loyalty to God, manifested in resurrected, immortal bodies in a new creation, in this life, in this earth, Satan's going to oppose you at every time. Now, we're going to have to wait 
until next week in the next chapter to see what happens. But of course, you know you know what happens in a good story. The good guys are going to win, right? I mean, usually. But you and I, 2,500 years after this particular story is written, we can read this particular historical narrative with fresh perspective, with new hope, given our place in history, looking back on the story with Christian eyes. We're 2,500 years later. So you should read Ezra like a Christian. There's no shame in that. We can understand what Ezra's original audience would understand, and it's not different, but we have fresh perspective given where we are in time and place in history. So here's how we do it. First, we can see what the antagonist is up to is, advan- is opposing the advance of God's kingdom, an earthly kingdom. That's what Satan hates. What Satan wants to do, essentially, what was happening in Ezra, is he wants to keep them in exile. Remember what exile means for Israel and their story? Exile means punishment for sin. Return from exile means what? Forgiveness of sins. It means restoration of the kingdom of God. It means God is in control and you are not under the dominion of any other foreign power. That is Israel's great hope. Satan has one agenda. Keep you in exile. Keep you in exile. Verses four to five describe the effect that the enemy's tactics had on the nation. They were discouraged afraid, and frustrated. Three common experiences for God's people when they succumb to the tactics of Satan. It is discouraging to face opposition in the pursuit of God's kingdom. It's discouraging. Today and tomorrow, marks the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. The kingdom of God, we know, you don't, even, you don't have to be a Bible scholar, just read your Bible. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice. The psalmist writes, just to give one example, Psalm 89, 14, he says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. You want to talk about the kingdom of God, you're going to have to talk about justice. Don't avoid that. Don't avoid that subject. So when 107-year-old survivor of the massacre, Viola Fletcher, came before Congress almost two weeks ago saying these words, I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921, Christians should be the first to stay, say, yes, Amen. Amen. It is shocking, shocking that many of us grew up and knew nothing about this story. And it's not hard to know why. It is not hard to know why. But many are discouraged. They are discouraged because they are afraid. Afraid of being called a liberal. Ugh. Afraid of being called a Marxist. Afraid of being a proponent of critical race theory. Afraid of being identified with a social justice movement that some influential Christians are calling, quote, the most dangerous threat to the gospel so far. 
That's fearful. I'm talking about people in our own camp who would say, well, you're just woke, you're a neo-Marxist, and we're just trying to believe the kingdom of God and his justice. So the people of God remain in fear. They remain discouraged. Who wants to be called an enemy of the gospel? I'm supposed to be a preacher of the gospel. And there's people go around saying, talk like that, you're an enemy. So you, you, you've got a dividing line here, Christian. You're gonna have to side one way or the other on this. Don't, don't, don't make your faith some kingdom of God that has nothing to do with the day, the politics of our age. It is very political, but never able to be co-opted by any kingdom of this world. The way of Jesus is different. So the people of God, discouraged and afraid, remain in exile. Their purpose is frustrated. The kingdom of God seems to be making no progress. We don't even know who God's people are anymore. We're eyeing each other in our own circles with suspicion. Maybe you're the enemy. It's happening. So what do we do? What do we do? Here's what I suggest you do. Find, yeah, amen. And here, here's how. Watch this. We have good news. Brothers and sisters, we have really good news. We should find ourselves in the story by considering, I think this is helpful, another story. It's one of Jesus' most famous story, and it echoes the one we're reading in Ezra loud and clear. I'm talking about the story of the prodigal son. It is a clear echo of what we're reading in Ezra. So when you think about the story of the prodigal son, Jesus is telling Ezra's story. Here's what one commentator says. Here we have a son who goes off in disgrace into a far country. And then he comes back only to find the welcome challenged by another son who has stayed put. The overtones are so strong, we simply cannot ignore them. This is the story of Israel, in particular of exile and restoration. It corresponds more or less exactly to the narrative grammar which underlies the exilic prophets and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah with a good deal of subsequent Jewish literature and which must therefore be seen as formative for Second Temple Judaism, that is, first century world. The exodus itself is the ultimate backdrop. Israel goes off into a pagan country, becomes a slave, and then is brought back to her own land. But exile and restoration is the main theme. It is what the parable is all about. So if you can't, you're reading Ezra like, that's temple, who cares? What? I don't know. It seems irrelevant to my life. If you can't locate yourself there, then locate yourself in the story of the prodigal son. And let me ask you, which of the two sons are you? You see, Jesus tells that particular story in order to retell Israel's story for the purposes of identifying the true people of God. And what does he say? He says, that he is bringing about the true return from exile. He has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. In Jesus is the announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand. Complete return from exile is here. 
But if you see yourself as waiting for this salvation, you say, I'm, I'm among the people of God. I'm waiting for, for re- restoration from exile. If you see yourself that way, if you think of yourself that way, and yet you stumble over Jesus, then you are cast in the role of those who oppose those who are returning. You are, in effect, virtually a Samaritan. See, Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, of course, against the Pharisees. To identify a Pharisee with a Samaritan, do you feel the weight of what that would mean in the first century? That's about as infuriating as you could possibly imagine. No wonder the Pharisees hated Jesus. But again, which of the two sons are you? Do you read the story of Ezra and identify yourself with the good guys? Do you, like the Pharisees, see the enemy as those people out there while you are assuming that you are on the right side of God's justice? Is that what you're doing? Now, Jesus, of course, doesn't say that the younger son who ran off and squandered the father's inheritance is just automatically the good guy. Instead, Jesus tells the story, the story of Israel, in such a way that makes it plain that he alone is bringing Israel finally out of exile. Only he can usher in the kingdom of God. Only he can do it. So he calls all of us Pharisee or zealot. That's basically you're conservative and you're liberal in the first century. He calls all to repent, all to repent. He calls us to recognize that he is the king with unswerving loyalty. As I've reflected on the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, by the way, the Tulsa race riot, if you're going to say that word, understand it's the white people who are rioting. And before you're so quick to say, well, that was them, that was a different day. As I've reflected on this, and the message of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom, I just want to share with you what, what I think God is stirring up in my life, and I hope you will join me. He calls us to recognize that the problem that lurked in the hearts of the 500 or so white special deputies of the Tulsa Police Department who were deputized in a moment to, quote, get a gun and get a N-word. Listen, that same evil lurks in my own heart. It's fearful to be called a social justice warrior, be cast out of the evangelical circles or whatever you think. That's a fearful thing. But it's also fearful to be called a racist, a bigot. That's terrifying. Do you know what Christians have the permission to do? This is who I am without Jesus. How do I know that 100 years ago I wouldn't have been part of that riot? How do you know that? How do you know that? If you don't recognize that same evil lurking in your heart, if you think you are better than they, that you don't need any repentance, then Jesus means nothing to you. 
not the real Jesus. We just, we sang a song, Caleb, I, I, I know you and I, I give him some information about what we're preaching, and he, and there, there's, so there's different phrases that usually stick out that I'm like, oh, that, that's meaningful to me today, knowing what I'm about to preach. And in the first song, because he lives, there was something about us killing Jesus. See there the cross to which we nailed him. You know what? You could accuse me of being a social justice warrior, a bigot, a racist, and I will have to say, I'm guilty of more than that. I'm guilty of killing the king of kings. Christians, can you say that? If you can't say that, then you don't understand that Jesus says, do you think that you are above such evil, such atrocity as what happened on May 30th, June 1st, 1921 at Tulsa, Oklahoma. Do you think that those white sinners and rioters and ethnic cleansers were worse sinners than you? And Jesus will say, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. So what is repentance but a turning back to the Lord, a trusting in him alone to bring you back from the pigsty, to bring you out of exile, to give you by grace the kingdom of God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not a cleaning up of your life because you can't clean it up. You could cover it up. You can hide it. But lurking in your heart is damnable deeds of unbelief. Against the king of kings, we are cosmic traitors deserving his full wrath. And you, Christian, ought to know that. I ought to know that. So what is repentance but a coming to Jesus like the prodigal returning home and saying, I don't deserve. Make me a slave. Jesus said, I didn't come to call sinner, or to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Can you identify as the bad guy? If you can't, then you don't know what it means to be among the people of God. Every plan of humanity will ultimately be frustrated. But God's kingdom, his agenda for his creation can never be thwarted. Because the one who has brought us out of exile, the one who proclaimed the dawning of the kingdom of God on earth, the one who opposed the great adversary, Satan himself, he disarmed him on the cross and he vanquished him on Easter Sunday. And so he promises to all who will receive him, Pharisee and zealot alike, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat, or whatever else you want to say, all who will come to him. He will not cast out. But that's the only way. It's only through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we all know the days in which we live are fraught with opposition, conflict. We feel it, we hear it, we know it. But if we're honest, we are the worst of sinners. We have no righteousness of our own to which to say we are the people of God. No, we come like the prodigal and say, is there any hope? Is there any hope?
throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ with no other option but that we hear amazing words of grace. Bring the robe. Put the ring on the hand. Kill the fattened calf. It's time to have a celebration because my people have come home. We ask you, O oh God, to grant us the joy of seeing that our return from exile is found only in embracing Jesus and all that he is, letting him who knows the evil that lurks within our heart expose it all, following in his way, being unswervingly devoted to Jesus. That's what we ask you to do. You gotta help us. None of us like to be accused. None of us, when we, when we are accused, we go to self-defense every time, and Satan loves it. Go ahead. Be your own advocate. You'll perish. You'll perish. But in Jesus, we have a real advocate with the Father. We have a righteous one on our behalf who knows how deeply we are flawed, how far we've fallen, how sinful, how evil our hearts and loves us anyway. This is the good news. Bring your people home, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.